Well, good evening, everybody. I'm going to ask you, if you will, please turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke. I didn't turn it on. There it is. Is it on now? Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm going to ask all y'all to turn to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to consider a story that we see there in just one moment. Um, before we read there, and before we begin our lesson, I'd just like to say thank you. Um, I'm never very good at expressing my feelings and my emotions in situations like this, so uh, please tolerate me if I'm a little clunky, but it has been really wonderful to be with all of you. Um, this church is... Uh, a wonderful family, and that's very easy to see. You guys have been so gracious to us, and uh, I told Dave tonight that it's really sad that we have to go back home because we've been eating like kings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Brent's taking us to lunch every day, and then we've had dinner at y'all's houses uh, or out at the restaurants, and we really appreciate that. Uh, we just have had a wonderful time, and it's been so refreshing to be with you. It's always an encouragement. To go away from home and away from what you're used to, away from what you normally see, and to see God's people flourishing in another place. And so thank you so much for the refreshment that you've brought to me. And please, continue working hard for the Lord in your place. It is a wonderful thing you guys are doing here. We've all heard this phrase before, uh, a diamond in the rough. You've heard that phrase before, right? First time I ever heard that phrase... I was a little boy watching the Disney movie. Who knows what it is? Aladdin, right? And so in Aladdin, we see the gaping mouth to the cave of wonders open up wide. It swallows a criminal and it bellows. Only one may enter here. One whose worth lies deep within a diamond in the rough. And ultimately, through the course of that movie, we discover that the diamond in the rough that the cave is talking about is a poor and common thief named Aladdin. And he qualifies as that diamond in the rough because he really has he has a rough exterior. He doesn't have an impressive exterior. He's not somebody that anyone would expect has extraordinary value, value deep within himself. Whenever anybody looks at him, they see a common thief. What do the palace guards say? He's a street rat. That's how Aladdin is perceived. That's what his outer appearance looks like. He's nothing special. He's unimpressive. He's nothing more than a street rat. And of course, through the course of the movie, when we watch him fall in love with Princess Jasmine and save the princess and save the kingdom, we learn that even beneath that rough exterior, even when you wouldn't expect anything from a guy like this, he... He has extraordinary value. And that's the meaning behind that phrase, a diamond in the rough. It actually comes from actual real diamonds when you find them in nature. When you find a diamond in nature, it is rough, it is dirty, it is uncut, and it is, it is very far from beautiful. If, if you ever see a picture of an uncut diamond in the rough, it's nothing special. But the amazing thing about it is, if you start working on it, if you wash it a little bit, and you get a professional to cut it up, it can turn into something that is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. You don't see its value from the outside, but you know that there's extraordinary value within. And that brings us to Luke chapter 7. 
Because in this chapter, what we do is we find our Lord encounter a diamond in the rough while he dines at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Begin reading with me in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she is a sinner. And so this story in Luke 7 begins with Jesus eating dinner at a Pharisee's house. And it's interesting that the Pharisee invites Jesus over. He really wants to spend time with Jesus. Even though they don't see eye to eye, there's something about Jesus that the Pharisee is willing to accept. And that is that he lives a moral life. And that is attractive to this Pharisee. He's interested in Jesus. And while they're eating dinner, in walks a woman from the city who is nothing like Jesus. She's a sinful woman. Other translations may say that she was an immoral woman. She is the kind of woman who has a reputation. And it seems like everybody in the house and everybody at that table knows exactly what her reputation is. She is most likely a prostitute. She has devoted her life to sin. She even earns her livelihood through sin. Yet the story tells us that she comes to Jesus with her head bowed. In her eyes full of tears. She comes with a broken spirit and a contrite heart and she assumes the posture of repentance. She constantly weeps and wipes his feet with her hair. From the beginning of the story, the second she walks into that house, we see how rough her exterior is. But through the course of the story, we see that her value shines through. She is... She is a diamond in the rough. But the funny thing about this story is that it actually has nothing to do with her. At least, it's not primarily about her. This story is really about Simon the Pharisee and how he sees her. Because when she walks in, all he can see is her ugly reputation. All he can see is all the sins that he knows that she's committed. And in fact, it says in verse 39 that this Pharisee even concluded something in his heart. In his heart, he thought to himself, well, I guess that settles it. Jesus isn't a prophet. He he doesn't come from God because the kind of person that God sends messages to, the kind of person that God speaks to would know who this lady is. And if he knew who this lady was, he would not let her touch him. Because in this Pharisee's mind, When you, a righteous person, encounter somebody who has a reputation like that, the only right way to respond is to do this. And to keep them as far away from them as you possibly can. Then Jesus turns his attention to Simon in verse 40. And listen to what he says to Simon. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And so Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's heart when he sees this woman. And he responds responds to that by telling a simple parable about two debtors. There are two debtors who owe a lender some money. And and, and one of them owes more than the other. But neither one of them has the ability to, to repay. And so the lender forgives them both. And Jesus follows up that story by asking that piercing question. Which of them will love him more? And Simon responds correctly. And I think it's funny how he responds. You notice he says, not... The one whom he forgave more, he says, I suppose, which is kind of the way we sound when we admit to things that we don't really want to admit to. I suppose it was the one whom he forgave more. It's almost like Simon kind of gets where Jesus is going already. I suppose the one whom he forgave more, that's the one who's going to love the master more. Then Jesus goes on and he, he helps Simon understand how this parable applies to his situation. And he does that by asking a simple question. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I want you to notice that Jesus looks directly at Simon and he asks that question. Do you see This woman. And do you understand what the point of this story is? Do you understand what the point of that question is? Because because the truth is, when we look at the story, what's happening in this story is that Simon sees the woman. He understands that she's coming to his house. It's not like he can't see her there. He can see her with his physical eyes. He can see all of her past and all of her reputation, all the things she's done. But at the end of the day, Simon still really doesn't see this woman at all. He doesn't see her extraordinary value. He doesn't see that even a woman like this is extraordinarily precious in the eyes of God. And so the point of this encounter with Jesus is supposed to teach Simon something. It's supposed to teach him that a long list of sins do not make me less precious in the eyes of God. It is supposed to teach us that my horrendous lifestyle in the past does not disqualify me from repentance. It is supposed to teach us that just because I've been a godless sinner does not mean that I have no value with God. In fact, to go a step further, this story might actually teach us that that, that the worse my past looks, the easier it is for me to form a loving relationship with Jesus. Yeah, that's the point of the parable, isn't it? That one is forgiven more than the other. And he says, which one will love him more? And he says, the one who is forgiven more. And that's actually something that we've seen happen in our own lives, haven't we? That some people, some people come from awful backgrounds. Some people come from lives that have just been totally twisted and messed up and ruined. But when they finally find the light of Christ in their life, loving Jesus becomes so second nature to them. Have you seen that? Sometimes it's easier for them to love Jesus than it is for 
others who may have been raised in the church or have always grown up knowing Christianity because he who is forgiven much loves much. And so Jesus challenges Simon's perspective and he says, do you see this woman? Do you understand that just because she has a bunch of sins does not mean she's less valuable? In fact, it may mean it may mean that ultimately she'll love me more than you do. Simon, do you see this woman? This is something that I think lots of people struggle to see. And I think, I think sometimes we all fall under this mistaken impression that, that God is going to be attracted to people who live the cleanest lives. And, and I think you know what I mean by that phrase. I hope you know what I mean by that phrase. We talked earlier this week in one of my lessons. I can't remember which one, which that's the way it goes. But we talked earlier about how sometimes we have, we have sin lists, right? Some people have longer sin lists than other people, right? And I might be arrogant when I say, well, my sin list is shorter than yours. Right, But sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, look, if God's really attracted to anybody, he's attracted to the people whose sin list is the shortest and it's the least scandalous. But that's actually not true according to the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God is attracted to people who want a relationship with him. He's attracted to people who seek him and love him and want to be with him despite what their past looks like. If you go to Matthew chapter 9 real quick, if you'll permit me to take a little detour there, that's exactly what's happening here in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus invites Matthew, the tax collector, to come follow him. And then he goes and he has a reception at Matthew's house with a bunch of tax collectors and a bunch of sinners. And at that time, because of that fest, because of that feast at Matthew's house, all of the Pharisees start pearl clutching over the fact that Jesus is hanging out with these people. It says in verse 10, Matthew 9, verse 10, Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous. But sinners. And so all these Pharisees again are upset that Jesus is hanging out with sinful people. And Jesus sets them straight. He says, look, I came because I wanted to heal sick people. And you need to understand that I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And if you go look up that term, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. That is a term that comes from the Old Testament. And the study of that term is is exceedingly rich. But the point of all of that is that what God really wants more than anything else is he wants a relationship with you. And his point to the Pharisees here is, I don't care what their past looks like. I don't care what you think they've done or what they really have done. What I want is a relationship with them despite their past. That actually leads Jesus in Matthew 21 to make one of the most shocking statements you can read In the entire Gospels. Where Jesus says this in Matthew 21 and verse 31. He says, which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. (laughs) I can't imagine how the Pharisees would have responded when he said that. But it's true. 
Because it doesn't matter what your past looks like. What matters is whether or not you want to serve Jesus, whether or not you are seeking Jesus. And so Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? Because what Simon has done is all he sees is her past. All he sees is is her reputation. All he sees is the long list of sins that are associated with her. All he sees is a rough exterior. And he cannot see below the surface that within this woman's heart is a soul that God wants and that God loves. Do you see this woman? And when I read that question... It causes me to look in my mirror when I wake up in the morning and ask myself the same question. Do I see the woman? When I go out and I interact with people in my life, no matter what they look like or where they come from or what their past looks like, do I see the value of the people around me? Do I see them the way that God sees them? Do you see this woman? You know, one of the lies that the devil loves to tell is that some souls matter more than others. And if you look carefully into our world, you can see that lie being told over and over and over again that some souls matter more than other souls. And he tells that lie in a variety of different ways. He tells that lie on the basis of this. Sometimes he says, look, some souls matter more than others because they're of a different race. And so some people believe because of the lies of the devil that some people, because of the color of their skin or their country of origin or whatever their nationality is, some people believe that some matter more than others. Some are more valuable than others because of their race. He also tells us that some are more valuable than others because they are of a different sex. For many years, thankfully it's ended now, but for many years there was a one child... One China, a one child policy in the nation of China. Did you guys know about that? And over the course of the years when that policy was enacted, 40 million babies were aborted. But one of the interesting things that came out of that is that to this day in the country of China, there are 33 million more men than women. Do you know why? Because the devil tells us the lie that some souls matter more than other souls. Sometimes he tells us that some souls matter more than others because they possess a different level of wealth. That's a truly incisive question to ask yourself. Do I truly believe that the homeless man living under the bridge near my house is just as valuable as the person who lives next door to me who has a nice car and a nice job and lives in a cozy house. Do I really believe that they have the same value? Sometimes the devil tells us that some people matter more than others because they have a greater intellect than others. In Iceland, nearly 100% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. Did you know that? They have basically eradicated that entire category of person in that country. And we may look at that and we may say that's terrible, but you know the U.S. isn't much better. Do you know how many how many Down syndrome babies we abort here? 70%. 70%. Why? Because the devil tells us some souls matter more than others. 
One of the lies that he likes to tell us is that some souls matter more than others because they have more physical beauty. That's one of the lies that you've probably been aware of since you were in high school, right? Because that's how it works when you go to high school. If you're pretty, if you're attractive, if you look good, then you matter. But if you don't, then you mean nothing. That's what the devil likes to tell us on so many different levels. That some souls matter more than other souls. But one of the things that comes across very clearly throughout all the Gospels is that that every soul matters to Jesus. It does not matter what race they are, what sex they are. It does not matter how much wealth they have or what class they have or what job they do or how much intellect they have or how physically beautiful they are. Every single last soul is precious to our Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the Gospel Gospel of Luke, you see this clearly a few chapters later in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells another parable. He tells a parable about a man who chases after a lost sheep. And I want you to hear this. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice again that they're showing the same attitude here that that, that, that Simon showed in his house in Luke chapter 7. They're grumbling because Jesus is hanging out with sinners. Verse 3, so he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus tells this parable and he starts by talking about sheep. He says a man has 100 sheep and when one of them goes astray, he leaves 99 in the field to go chase that one. Why? Because one sheep matters. Even if it's just one sheep, it matters. He says, look, every time you lose a sheep, it matters. And every time a sheep is lost, it is worth pursuing. And every time a lost sheep is found, it is worth rejoicing abundantly. And Jesus says, you understand how this works with livestock. Why don't you understand how this works with people? That every single soul that Jesus loses matters. And every single soul that is lost is worth pursuing. And every time a lost soul is found again, is a time for abundant rejoicing. One thing that our Lord made very clear during his time on earth was that every soul mattered to him. He saw the woman in Luke 7. He saw that she was not merely a reputation and she was not merely a list of egregious sins, but she was lost. She could be found. She could be redeemed. She could love God Deeply, She had extraordinary value. She was a diamond in the rough. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, do I see the people who are around me? Now, you may look at that list that we wrote earlier about, and and you may say, look, I'm none of those things. I see the value in people. I see that everybody has extraordinary value to God and every soul is precious. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not socioeconomicist, if that's how you're supposed to say that. 
I don't, I don't prize physical beauty. I have some really ugly friends, okay? You may say, I'm not any of those things, but... But I wonder if when it comes to... When it comes to the work of evangelism, I wonder if we can ask ourselves that same question. Do you see that everywhere around you there are precious souls that Jesus loves and that might, if you introduce them to the gospel, might choose to love him deeply? Do we chase every soul? The way that Jesus would have chased every soul. Now I don't know what your answer is to that question. And I think this is a very evangelistic and a very loving group. So I'm not going to answer for you. But I'm going to answer for myself. And you can decide later if you agree with me. But let me tell you why. Sometimes I don't chase every single soul like Jesus would. Sometimes the truth is that I don't chase every single soul because because I overlook I I simply overlook them. I am simply so distracted with everything else that's going on in my life that I don't stop and I don't think about how valuable the people are around me. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Where you get so focused on doing your life and, and, and accomplishing all of your tasks and doing what needs to be done and doing all of your work that you just don't stop to think that every single time I bump somebody's elbow, I'm touching somebody that could be a child of God. Or somebody that is a child of God and may need to be saved by him. You know, every every once in a while when uh, having three kids gets especially tough, after the kids go to bed, Leah sends me out on a mission. Uh, and don't judge me. We go to get Taco Bell. That's the way it is. <laughs> and so when we leave my house, it's about 15 minutes away, and I drive past uh, the back of a Winn-Dixie in my town. And in the, the area that I drive past, it's not a very good part of town. In fact, there was a time where there was a whole homeless tent city that was established back there that before it kind of got cleared out by the people in the county. And I noticed that whenever I would drive by that Winn-Dixie, there was always this little congregation late at night. There's always this congregation of like six to eight homeless people spending time together behind the Winn-Dixie. And one night as I was on my way home, I drove past them and it struck me for the first time ever that not even once, all the different times that I'd seen that group of people standing there, never once had I thought about, thought about the fact that there are six or seven or eight souls. So often I just drove past them. Oh, there they are again. And I never even thought about the fact that they were human. I never even thought about the fact that God loves them. I never even thought about the fact that they are desperately lost. I never even thought about the fact that according to Luke 15, Jesus would get out of the car and he would go chase them until he found them. I never even thought about it because I'm so focused on getting home with Taco Bell to my wife. Do you find yourself doing that sometimes? That sometimes we don't chase lost souls because we... We simply overlook the fact that they're all around us. Digging a little bit deeper into that, sometimes that's not the reason. Sometimes we overlook lost souls because we, we believe that they'll never change. Have you ever been guilty of that? Looking at that friend or that coworker, or that neighbor and looking at their lifestyle and what's going on with them and saying, nope, 
That's not going to that's not going to happen. They're never going to change. They're too deep in that sin. They're too entrenched. There's no way the gospel's ever going to be able to shine a light in their life and change them. Would you ever try to get a Bible study with a homosexual? Would you ever try and talk about spiritual things with somebody who's trans? Or somebody who's cross-dressing at the grocery store? Or are those things just places we don't go because it just seems insurmountable? Have you ever been guilty of that like I have been? Do we struggle to see those people because we think that they can never change? And if you're like me and if you feel that way sometimes, then I need to say two things about that. The first thing I need to say is, look, at the end of the day... Do we have faith? Do we have faith in the power of the gospel to change people's lives? And if we have faith in the power of the gospel, then we'll look at somebody, no matter how messed up their life may be, and we'll say, we know the strength of the gospel. We know what the gospel did to somebody like the Apostle Paul. We know that it can have an effect on somebody. We just need to sow that seed. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly than that, I want you to appreciate that that's not how Jesus operated. I want you to appreciate that Jesus, Jesus approached people about the gospel and spoke to people about the gospel, even though he knew they were never going to change. We talked about Judas last night. And I want you to consider how amazing it is what Jesus does with Judas. That during Jesus' entire ministry, he knows exactly what Judas is going to do. He knows that Judas is going to steal from the money box. He knows that Judas is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He knows that eventually Judas is going to end his own life when he realizes that Jesus has been condemned. He knows all the way back in John 6, he knows that Judas is a devil. And yet what does Jesus do? From the beginning of his ministry, he chooses Judas. From the beginning of his ministry, he teaches Judas, he guides, he guides Judas, he, 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 he sends Judas out to preach. He does all these things for Judas. He probably spent late nights studying with Judas and talking to him and dealing with things that he was working out. We know that in John chapter 13, he washed the feet of Judas just hours before he was betrayed. And Jesus did all of this even though he knew how it was going to turn out. And if Jesus can serve people and can try to help people that he knows, if he can chase people he knows are never going to change, then why can't I chase people that may have a chance? We need to try. We need to chase them anyway, no matter what their life may look like. Third, sometimes we overlook these people. We don't chase them because we simply aren't willing to do the work. When we look at those people who have difficult and scary and messy lives, sometimes we look at that and realize that's going to take a lot of labor, that's going to take a lot of effort, that's going to take a lot of time. And and maybe I'm just not willing to sacrifice everything that I know I need to sacrifice in order to help this person find Jesus. May God give us strength to be willing to do that work no matter how hard we may think it may be. May God give us strength to see the women in our lives. To see that all the lost souls around us are precious. And every single one of them is worth pursuing. Even if that means a lot of hard work. Even if we don't think they're really going to change. May he give us the strength to try anyway. Ask yourself.
Do you see the women in your life? Do you see the value in the precious souls that are all around you? And maybe, maybe the most important question for you is not that tonight. But maybe you also want to ask yourself, do you see the value in yourself? Because sometimes we're not the Pharisee judging other people or thinking that they're unworthy of the gospel or thinking that they'll never change. Sometimes it's us looking in the mirror, looking at ourselves, and and we're that sinful woman who's coming from the city who thinks that we are past saving, that we aren't worthy of love, that, that, that Jesus could never overlook what I've done. And I challenge you tonight that if that's you, you need to look in the mirror again and you need to see that person. That beyond your rough exterior, within your heart, there is a person that God loves, a person that Jesus is pursuing, a person that he will forgive if you truly seek him with your life. And so I ask you to consider that question that Jesus asks. Question Jesus asked Simon in his, in his house in Luke chapter 7. Question that is so extremely important. Do you see the people around you? Thank you.